This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of the word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, you've revealed these things to us in your word that we might live in a way that is in accord with your creation, in accord with your will, in accord with reality as you have defined it, not as we wish it were or we wish to define it according to our fallen creaturely status. Father, we pray that as we study your word today, that God the Holy Spirit would make clear to us the ways in which we need to apply these principles. May we be strengthened spiritually as God the Holy Spirit stores these eternal truths into our soul. And Father, we pray that as we seek to implement the principles that we study, that over a course of time our lives may glorify you and that we might be a testimony not only to those around us but also within the angelic conflict and to uh, all of the principalities and powers uh, throughout the universe. Now, Father, we pray that you would guide and direct our thinking, that we might focus upon you today. In Christ's name, amen. This morning we're looking at a topic that is convicting for every single one of us. I don't think there's anyone. I've known a few people I don't think really have a weakness in this area. They have other areas. But we're dealing with the area of the sins of the tongue. This is, yeah, I hear the murmurings already. Yeah, this is not easy for any of us because I think that what the Apostle James says in his epistle is is true as he warns us about the dangers of the tongue, the dangers of a lack of self-control, self-mastery in the area of our mouth. So we need to learn to watch our mouth. James is a good place to introduce this. Uh, You don't need to turn there. We'll just be there momentarily for an introduction as we look at various uh, proverbs related to the the warnings and teachings related to wisdom and what we say. We're in a study of Proverbs for those of you who are visiting. Uh, we've been going through the book of Proverbs for the last uh, eight or nine months, I believe, and we will be concluding this study of Proverbs uh, at the end of this month before we begin a study on the life of Christ beginning in September. James writes, and James has often said, I think wrongly, as the New Testament counterpart to to Proverbs, James seems that way because James is a very practical sort of uh, epistle. But James is not writing a series of 
independent proverbial statements like Solomon is. Uh, he's just more practical. He touches on key issues. In James one twenty six, he makes a statement. He says, if anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but de- deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Now, a couple of things we ought to point out here in just in understanding the passage he talks about people who think that they've arrived spiritually. That's what he means by religious. Sometimes we use the term religion as a term that is in contrast to Christianity. Often we talk about religion as being human systems of achieving a relationship with God based upon works because a lot of, uh, a lot of Christian denominations emphasize works over grace and a lot of world religions emphasize works over the a provision of Jesus Christ on the cross for our salvation. We use religion, therefore, as a sort of a technical term for any kind of works-based system of approaching God. But in James, James uniquely from other writers of Scripture uses the term, and he refers to just the spiritual life of the individual, their walk with the Lord. And so he is addressing a problem that he sees in that congregation that he's addressing. And remember, James is probably the first New Testament epistle written. And he says to them, if basically in this section from 1, uh, 26 on through uh, chapter 2, that, that there's a problem with people who claim to be learning the word, but they're not really applying it. That's what he means by being a hearer, uh, and a doer of the word. A hearer of the word is someone who listens to, studies the word. A doer of the word is someone who applies it. And only someone who applies the word is truly religious in the sense that that James is using the term, that is, having an ongoing relationship with God based upon grace and based upon the principles of the New Testament. So he says, if you think that you're religious, if you think you have a spiritual life, if you think that you're walking with the, with the Lord, if you think that you're walking by the Spirit, and you don't bridle your tongue, oops, you're not there. You're making a false claim. These are a lot like some of the if clauses at the beginning of First John. Uh, if you claim to have no sin... Uh, that's that kind of thing. If you claim that you've arrived spiritually and you're, you don't have self-control over what you say, what comes out of your mouth, then you're in self-deception. You're deceiving your own thought, your own heart. Heart often stands for the thinking part of the soul. You're just in self-deception. You're in arrogance. Now, we can expand this a little bit as I talk about the sins of the tongue. We can also say that this applies to the sins of the pen, the sins of the typewriter, the sins of the keyboard. Uh, this applies to any sort of verbal expression that, that we engage in, whether it's actually something we say orally or whether it's something we write, some email that we pass on. Uh, there are a lot of applications uh, of this in different areas of our life. So the issue here is really on self-control of the tongue, self-mastery. And we have to remember that self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, uh, 21 to 23 lists the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. 
And so this is not something that you're going to be able to do on your own, neither am I. It is something that is generated, produced, enabled in us as a result of our walk by the Holy Spirit. But there are those who think that somehow they've arrived. They have enough uh, doctrinal notebooks on the wall. They've taken a lot of notes. They go to Bible class three, four, five times a week. They have all the jargon down, all the verbiage down. But James says, let's have a little practical test here. Can you control your mouth? Can you control the expression of your soul through what you say, what you write? Uh, if not, you're in self-deception, and your concept of the spiritual life is pretty much useless. James, then, that's in the introduction of the, of the epistle, and James talks about the sins of the tongue a little bit more in chapter 3. Just want to read a few verses to get the point across. He says, no man can tame the tongue. That's stated as a universal principle. It's not possible for us in the power of our own sin nature to tame the tongue. In the, in Galatians chapter 5, 19, 20, talks about the works of the flesh. In the works of the flesh, it lists along with sins such as adultery and fornication, immorality. It also lists sins such as strife, slander, divisiveness, things of this nature, heresies. Those are all the result of these sins of the tongue. And so it's evidence of the sin nature control. No man can tame the tongue. It's an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men. In other words, the tongue gives us a barometer of what goes on inside of our soul. We often break sins down, as we do in... Uh, with our sin nature diagram we've talked about, the area of personal sins at the bottom is our area of weakness where we have a certain uh, proclivity to, to sin. Some people are more prone to certain mental attitude sins. Some people are more prone to sins of the tongue. Some people are more prone to overt sins. But what I've discovered as we look at Scripture and at our own lives is that all of the sins of the tongue and the overt sins really manifest mental attitude sins. That's at the real core. Arrogance, hatred, fear, worry, jealousy, envy, all of these different mental attitude sins lie behind these awful things that come out of our mouth. We, we say things in anger. We, we run down other people uh, because we're angry with them or we're jealous of them or we think that somehow by tearing them down it builds us up, whatever it may be. These, these sins of the tongue reflect certain mental attitude sins. Well, James says that the tongue is really, it, it's, it really reflects what's coming out of our, uh, out of our soul. If, if we're walking by the Holy Spirit, then what comes out of our mouth reflects the fact that we're walking by the Spirit, that we're walking in fellowship, that with it we bless God. But we can sin, and instantly we're out of fellowship, and the next second we're cursing someone, some driver on the highway, somebody who just cut us off, somebody who's on customer service that we were dealing with. We can instantly be out of fellowship and then where the tongue has shifted gears and is producing a lot of vile. Okay, so verse 10 then, James goes on to say, Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. 
My brethren, these things ought not to be so. In other words, this is not how we're to conduct ourselves as believers. There's a protocol for living the Christian life. There's a code of ethics, a standards for the believer's life. This is not legalism. I find that a lot of people had trouble with, with legalism. Somewhere along the line, people sometimes get the idea that grace means since Jesus died on the cross for our sins and since we all we need to do is confess our sins, uh, to be forgiven, then we really don't have to try to exercise any level of self-control. All we really have to do is make sure we've confessed our sins and we show up at Bible class and somehow the Holy Spirit's just going to make it happen. We don't have to engage our volition. We just will get in fellowship and the Holy Spirit's going to do it for us. That's just completely wrong. That, that, the Holy Spirit doesn't take over our volition. He may strengthen it. He may enable it. He may remind us of what we need to be doing. But we need to make those tough decisions that when we really want to do X, and Scripture says we need to manifest our, our family heritage and the royal family of God, we need to do Y, we've got to say, okay, I'm not going to do X. We've got to say no to our sin nature. And I find a lot of Christians think, oh, that's legalism. No, legalism is saying that somehow my relationship to God, my reception of grace blessings is based upon what I do. It's by works and not by faith. Uh, no, it's by faith. It's by grace through faith. But we, uh, we have to still do what Christ says to do. But that's not the basis of God's love and blessing for us. So we ought not to live and use our mouth like the unbeliever does. And he goes on to say in verse 11, does a spring send forth both fresh water and bitter from the same opening? And it shouldn't. That's the implication. It should not. Now I want to look at a key verse in Proverbs 18, 20, and 21. It's just our starting point for our study of what the book of Proverbs says about self-control, about the value of the mouth and how... What comes out of the mouth reflects whether or not we're wise or foolish, whether or not we're righteous, living a righteous life or a wicked life. Proverbs 18, 20, and 21 are two verses linked together that indicating with an emphasis on the, what comes out of the mouth. Starts off, a man's stomach shall be satisfied from the fruit of his mouth. From the produce of his lips, he shall be filled. So we have a, a, a reverse parallelism here in this verse. The same word translated filled is the word for satisfied. And at the center of this, we have fruit of the mouth and produce of the lips. So the focus is really upon what comes out of our mouth. Uh, verse 21 goes on to say, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Now, what in the world is going on here? Well, what this, these two verses warn us about is that our words, what we say and how we say it, has a tremendous impact on others, but it also has an impact on us. The picture created in Proverbs frequently is that our words and the fruit of our lives are something that other people feed on. Other people watch us. Uh, it may be at your place of employment or within your own family. There may not be very many believers, but they know that you are a Christian. Uh, 
maybe even in your neighborhood, and people watch you. I have a uh, several friends, as most of you know, several close friends in the in the Jewish community, and I have been introduced to a couple of them through one of the men who helped start West Houston Bible Church. And he has known them for many, many years, where I've known them for about a decade or more. He's known them for maybe three decades. And one time he told me, he said, never forget, they watch every single thing that we say and do. And that's not just them. That's a lot of other people in our lives. They know that we claim to be Christians, and so we are under observation by people to see if what we do matches what we uh, claim to believe if we have a relationship with God that that really does make make a, a difference. So our lives are something that influence other people and are a testimony to other people, including the uh, the words that we say. That's what we're talking about here. Proverbs twelve fourteen says, "A man will be satisfied with good by the fruit of his mouth." And the recompense of a man's hands will be rendered to him. So in this, it talks about the fruit of the fruit of our mouth and that this is related to what comes back to us as the recompense of what we do. So there's a parallelism there. In this verse, in Proverbs 18.20, the second stanza of verse 20 says, From the produce of his lips he shall be filled. This word for produce is the word uh, tevoir in the Hebrew, which means uh, produce. It can mean harvest. It can mean profit. It's the result of something. It is a result of an emphasis. It's a result of where we put our energy, where we put our our efforts. So the uh, the produce of the lips is a parallel to the fruit of our mouth. And so here the writer is talking about what comes out of us. Now, in the first line, we read this statement, a man's stomach shall be satisfied from the fruit of his mouth. So there's this imagery here of eating, of being satisfied with a meal. Now, metaphorically, though, the writer, remember, this is poetry, and in wisdom poetry, there's a lot of different imagery, a lot of different metaphors that are used. The idea here is that this, the, the, the man's stomach, this is a figure of speech where a part of a person is used to, uh, to indicate the whole of the person. It's called the synecdoche of the part for the whole. Technically, it's where the, a part of the person, for example, it, uh, you, sometimes you can read about, um, the, the hand of someone. Did something well. The hand stands for the whole person. So here, the stomach is used as a representative of the entire person, both both physically and spiritually. So a person's uh, appetite is satisfied from the fruit of his mouth. So the idea here is that what we say has a not only affects other people, but it comes back and has an impact upon us and influences us. And that, that uh, just like uh, the, and then the second line, the produce, the harvest, uh, a harvest can be good or a harvest can be bad, but the, the uh, filling of oneself from the result of one's efforts is the emphasis here. Now, what exactly does this mean? We can get into a lot of technicalities as we go through this. The second, second verse, verse 21 says, death and life 
are in the power of the tongue. So it can go either way. That's the same kind of thing that that James emphasizes is that the tongue can either produce blessing or cursing so that that the tongue has a tremendous power to go in either direction, good or evil. And then the second line, those who love it will eat its fruit. And I think that what this refers to is those who love to talk. Okay, those who love to talk will eat of its fruit, either good or bad produce, either good or bad harvest. You're going to, in other words, you're going to uh, receive the result of what you speak. If if it's good, then it returns blessing to yourself. If it's bad, then it's going to return judgment uh, to yourself. And that's all of this is simply a poetic way of expressing what we have as an English proverb that people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. We're all somewhat vulnerable and that what goes out of our mouth is going to come back to us one way or the other. So if with our mouth we are a source of blessing and righteousness for people, then that will come back to us in a positive way. If we are harshly critical and judgmental, negative, gossipy, slanderous of other people, then that in turn will be the standard by which we are uh, handled and evaluated. This is exactly what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Matthew 7 is located within what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount was a uh, message that Jesus delivered to his disciples where he is countering the uh, the false morality of the Pharisees. The Pharisees touted a superficial morality And in the course of the uh, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, unless our righteousness or our morality exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, then we won't see the kingdom of God. And everybody would go, wow, you know, those Pharisees, they they were the best. They were really upright and moral. They were in synagogue and praying all the time. If our righteousness has to exceed theirs, then we can't get to heaven. Well, that was sort of Jesus' point is we can't be good enough. Uh, righteous enough. And what he is explaining is that the righteousness, he's giving a divine interpretation of the righteousness required by the law, and that this wasn't the kind of righteousness that the Pharisees were teaching. So one of the principles that he covers is this principle related to being judgmental. And so in Matthew 7, 1, he says, judge not that you be not judged. Now, a lot of people quote this self-righteously in a lot of different ways, and it's taken out of context and not understood. It is not a statement that we shouldn't have critical thinking skills and evaluate the thoughts and teachings of people or the actions of people. It's not talking about uh, putting your uh, brain in neutral and just accepting everyone for whatever it is that they want to say and want to do. That's not what it's talking about. Uh, it's talking about having a harsh uh, harsh judgment of other people. It's the verb crino, and it's used in a wide variety of contexts. It's used in a positive sense to talk about 
positively evaluating certain situations, but it's also used negatively of people who have harsh, capricious criticism, who just jump against other people, who are always negative, who are always putting other people down and always ridiculing other people, that kind of a thing. It's a harsh form of of judgment. So Jesus says, don't judge in this manner that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge... In other words, if you have a harsh, critical attitude towards other people, that comes across, that comes out of your mouth all the time, and other people are going to evaluate you on that same basis. It's going to come back to haunt you. Same thing we say, as I pointed out earlier, people who live in glass houses shouldn't, uh, shouldn't throw stones. Matthew 7, 3 through 5 uh, explains this in a little more detail. It says, why do you look at this speck in your brother's eye? And the word speck here is not a piece of dust, but it would, it referred to a dried piece of, or a piece of dried wood or chaff or a splinter, uh, something that has, you've gotten in your eye that is irritating you. And so, uh, you have this, this thing in your eye that's very small and almost imperceptible, but it's causing a lot of problems. But you don't, but instead, uh, you, so you're focusing on this negative, this minor negative thing in your brother's eye, but you don't consider the plank or the log that's in your own eye. In other words, you've got a glaring fault, but you're ignoring that and you're just spending your time on some small item of somebody else. It's none of your business. The focus is for us to be focusing on our own spiritual life and not on other people's failures or problems. And this is a main thing that goes through a lot of the Proverbs related to, um, related to the use of the tongue is that we are not to be getting involved in other people's business. That means no, that is a prohibition of judgment, slander, things of that, uh, of that nature. So Jesus is saying the same thing in a slightly different way as we have in Proverbs 18, 20, and 21. We are to, um, not be judgmental of others, or this will come back upon us. So we need to be satisfied uh, from the fruit of our uh, of our own mouth. Otherwise, if it's bad fruit, we'll, when we eat it, it too will be bad. So we have to be careful. Now, in terms of a structure, we see a little a couple of different ways in which we can organize this verse. It starts off talking about fruit. Uh, the fruit of the mouth in the first stanza, a man's stomach shall be satisfied by the fruit of his mouth. And then it talks about production in the second second line. Uh, the produce of his lips, he shall be filled. Then the first line of the, thir- of, the, of the second verse, death and life are in the power of the tongue. That's the result focus there. And then it ends with, again, an emphasis on, on the, the fruit of our, of our mouth. Those who love the power of the tongue, those who love to talk, need to be careful of what comes out of their mouth. There needs to be restraint. Proverbs 10, 19, and 13, 3 also emphasize that we need to bridle our tongue, as James says. We need to have self-restraint in this area. Proverbs 10, 19 says, In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. The more you talk the more you're likely to have sins of the tongue. If you keep your mouth shut, then you're going to limit that. 
uh, in a multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. This is a drumbeat theme in the Proverbs, that we need to have self-restraint on our mouth. Proverbs 13.3 says, He who guards his mouth preserves his life, but he who opens wide his lips, that is, talks a lot, especially about wrong things and talks about people, shall have destruction. We reap the consequences of what comes out of our mouth. So our prayer needs to be that of the psalmist at the end of Psalm 19. Think about Psalm 19 a minute. Some of, we've gone through this. I'm not going to go back and re- go through the, the, the psalm right now. But the first part of the psalm reflects upon the nonverbal communication or revelation of God in the heavens. It begins, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Then the second part of the psalm, it talks about uh, there's a praise for the law of the Lord. The law of the Lord is, uh, makes wise the simple and all these different uh, attributes of the law. So first of all, it talks about the nonverbal revelation, disclosure from God to us, then the verbal disclosure of God to us. But the last verse doesn't talk about God's word to us. The last verse is a prayer, a response. Now that we understand how God communicates to us, Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. That's something we need to pray every day. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Now, the Proverbs also give us a lot of warnings against the wrong kind of talk, being a tail-bearer. Uh, Proverbs really seems to own this topic of gossip and slander and uh, maligning other people and telling tales on other people. Proverbs 11.13 says that a talebearer reveals secrets. Now, my mother used to always say, you, you know, you, we never tell other people about your dirty laundry. We're not supposed to tell other people about other people's dirty laundry either. You know, there's there, people need to have the have a we need to have respect for people's privacy because we're all sinners. We all fail. And what I've discovered over the years of my ministry is people whose failures are evident to everybody sometimes have an extremely difficult time uh, getting their life straight because the failures they've had in the past are constantly brought up before them. And you often see this in certain congregations where something somebody has some spiritual failure, everybody in the congregation knows about it, and next thing you know, they're down the street at some other church. I was at a church one time where people thought, hmm, there seems to be a lot of divorces in this church. Maybe there's a problem here. No, it's just that people who got divorced happened to stay in the same church, and so it became known in most other churches, if you were going to, let's say, First Baptist or First Methodist, and you got a divorce, then the wife went to another church, the husband went to another church, and nobody knew there was a divorce. So, you know, it, it's uh, uh, was that way. It was people maintained a measure of privacy. As wise Christians, we need to respect people's privacy. 
We don't disclose other people's failures or talk about them. So a talebearer reveals secrets, but he who is of a faithful spirit conceals a matter. Now, this isn't talking about a conspiratorial cover-up. This is talking about the fact that we recognize that when people fail, they need to have the, the be treated with grace and goodness and kindness and not have those... Let, let the Lord deal with that. That's between them and the Lord, and everybody else doesn't need to know about their failures. Proverbs 16.28 says that a perverse man sows strife, and a whisper separates the best of friends. So gossip causes division. Divisiveness and strife is part of the works of the, the flesh or the sin nature, we learn from Galatians chapter 5. But in contrast, he who covers a transgression, this is the wise person, he who covers a transgression, uh, seeks love. But he who repeats a matter separates friends. So in both of these Versus you have this issue of how friends are separated as a result of someone who is talking out of turn, telling tales about somebody else, spreading gossip. And this happens, you can look at this in the small environment of a neighborhood, a family, a friends, social group, a church, or even in a city or a nation. And we can think about that in, in many different ways of application. There needs to be respect. We could apply this to the media. The media days become so gossipy all the way across the board. You go back uh, half a century ago, and you, we had a president who had had polio and was in a wheelchair, and the press wouldn't even publish photographs of him in a wheelchair, much less talk about uh, any illicit uh, extramarital affairs that were going on or any of the other things that happened in his personal life. And now nobody wants, the president want to talk about political issues anymore. They just talk about whatever is going on in a personal life. The media is often just a talebearer who is uh, spreading strife and division in the nation without ever dealing with serious issues. Proverbs 18.8 says that the words of a talebearer are like tasty trifles. We just love the juicy little gossip about, about people. We want to know what's going on. And yet they go down in the innermost body. In other words, this has a negative impact upon the spiritual health of an individual. Proverbs 20.19 says he who goes about as a talebearer reveals secrets Therefore, do not associate with one who flatters with his lips. Proverbs 26.20 says, Where there is no wood, the fire goes out. Where there is no talebearer, strife ceases. There's an analogy here that for a fire to burn, there has to be fuel. The fuel is wood. Well, the fuel of strife and discord is usually gossip and slander. So if we remove that, then unity can be restored. Uh, Proverbs 26:21 says that a charcoal is to burning coals and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. So as we look at these passages, we're reminded that there are these biblical standards for us in terms of understanding uh, how we are to control what comes out of our mouth. There's also a series of contrasts in the Scripture between the righteous and the wicked. I'm just going to give a few of these to you uh, so that we can be reminded of the contrast between the behavior of the righteous 
and the behavior of the wicked in terms of what comes out of our mouth. The tongue, Proverbs 10.20 says, the tongue of the righteous is choice silver. It has value. It, it strengthens uh, discourse. It, is, it builds people up. It is something that is positive, but the heart of the wicked. Now, notice the parallels between the tongue of the righteous and the heart of the wicked, because what comes out of the mouth reveals what's in the heart. And so they're both, both lines are talking about the same thing, and that is, uh, that is what comes out of a person's mouth reveals what's in the heart. The heart of the wicked is worth little. The heart of the wicked is going to produce gossip and slander and lies and become uh, is a source of discourse. So it's destructive, whereas the tongue of the righteous builds up. We see a flip of this where the second line, the heart of the wicked, when we look at this next verse, the heart of the righteous. Notice how the heart of the righteous in this verse is parallel to the mouth of the wicked. What comes out of the mouth reflects what's in the heart. So in the Proverbs, what we often see is another way of saying the mouth or what comes out of the mouth is to talk about what comes out of the heart. The heart of the righteous studies how to answer. Notice the self-restraint that's there. The righteous studies how to answer, thinks about it. doesn't just say the first thing that comes out of your mouth, doesn't just react instantly, but thinks about the appropriate way to answer, to respond to a given situation. But the mouth of the wicked pours forth evil. It just starts, you just get diarrhea of the mouth, and it's just nasty, angry, hate-filled uh, speech that comes out. Proverbs 15.2, the tongue of the wise uses knowledge rightly. The mouth of fools pours forth foolishness, just empty blather, gossip, or anger. Proverbs 10, 31 and 32, the mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom, but the perverse tongue will be cut out. That's simply a metaphorical way of talking about it will be removed because of the destructive consequences of the perverse tongue. The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked what is perverse. And so, again, there is this contrast in behavior between the righteous and the wicked in terms of what comes out of the mouth. The mouth of the wicked is destructive, pictured as murder, someone lying in ambush in Proverbs 12.6. The words of the wicked are, let us lie and wait for blood, but the mouth of the upright will deliver them. So the, the, the wicked are looking to take advantage of other people, to destroy other people, but the focus of the, the righteous is to save or deliver other people. And then in Proverbs 14.3, the mouth of a fool is a rod of pride. Rod is often used as something that is a physical instrument of domination. So the mouth of the fool is a rod of pride. It's talking about abusive language. But the lips of the wise will, again, preserve them. Notice this emphasis on deliverance in 12.6, preservation here. And that is that, that what the wise person says preserves and delivers uh, those around them. And then in Proverbs 14.23, another passage emphasizing some uh, restraint. In all labor there's profit, 
But idle chatter leads only to poverty. The point here is really what's in the second stanza, that if you stand around and talk all the time, you're all talk and no action, or as we say in Texas, you're all hat and no cattle. Uh, you're just a lot of talk, and there's no nothing that is positively uh, positively produced. Proverbs talks about the words that we say and the value of the words, and there's a great application uh, for this in believers. What are the most important words that we can say? In John 6:68, 6, uh, there is a conversation with Peter uh, and. The Lord says, well, why are you all staying with me? All these other disciples have left, so why are you still here? Why are you still hanging around? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So if we as believers are going to have words that have value, the most important words that we have are those who focus other people upon the grace of God, first and foremost in salvation, and second, in terms of the spiritual life. Uh, in John 6.63, Jesus said, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The, the words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. And so the wise words that we communicate often begin with the words of, of, uh, of Scripture, the words of the Gospel, and the words related to to the spiritual life. And so we need to make sure that our words are seasoned, as the Scripture says, with grace, and that our focus is on the Word, and that people match the way we live. They can see the match between the way we live and the way we talk, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your Word today and to reflect upon your goodness and your grace And, Father, we realize that we have a terrible difficulty managing our own mouths and and, and exercising self-control. That can only happen as a result of spiritual growth, walking by the Spirit, and as God the Holy Spirit uh, matures us, and we begin to realize the importance of mastering our own mouth. Father, we pray that God the Holy Spirit would take what we have studied today and make it clear to us how each one of us individually needs to apply it. But above all, Father, we know that there may be someone here or someone listening who, real, who <clears throat> may not know how to have eternal life. Maybe they're unsure or uncertain of their eternal destiny. Scripture teaches that we can be sure and certain about eternal life simply by trusting in Christ as our Savior. His words are words of life, we just read in John 6:63. He is the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, he says, the only way to God the Father. Father, it is clear from the Scripture that the only way to have an eternal life, to have a sure and certain eternal destiny, is by our faith alone in Christ alone. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Christ as Savior, this is your opportunity to do so right now, right where you sit. God the Father knows what you're trusting in for your eternal destiny. And if you are believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you believe that he died on the cross for your sins, then at that instant you are saved. You're justified, the Scripture says. You're regenerate, born again, and you have new life in Christ. Now, Father, we pray that you would make clear to each one here uh, the application of this message and that we might continue to be reminded of it 
in the days to come. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.